Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Tread Lightly podcast. I'm co-host and running coach Laura of Laura Norris Running. And I am co-host Amanda Brooks and coach Run to the Finish. So today we're going to talk about a couple of diet trends for runners that just won't quite go away, which is keto, intermittent fasting, and some other things like that. And I think this will be an informative episode, even if you are not currently doing one of those, to understand what's happening, why do people kind of keep going back to them, and what are the potential pitfalls. Yes, and all caveat a disclaimer that neither of us are registered dietitians. However, I have my master's degree in applied exercise science, and I spent 15 credit hours on sport nutrition. A lot of what we're pulling up today is stuff I covered in school, wrote papers on, papers that I got an A on. So it's not like I had incorrect info in those papers. I feel like I should put that out there. Um, But for individual cases, it is always best to work with a registered dietitian. 100%. And if you want to hit us up at Tread Lightly Running on Instagram, we have many great sport dietitians that we're happy to recommend if you're looking. Before we get to that, though, we have a listener question. This was sent in to me by Francesca. And she said, What do you think about training logs? I hear a lot of elites use them. Could it be helpful to use one? Absolutely. (laughs) What do you usually tell your athletes? Um, Well, first I usually tell them, I'm like, you know, what's a great training log is the thing that I see also. (laughs) So put more of your comments in final surge because it helps us both. Um, But beyond that, I do encourage it because I think it really helps with kind of like reflecting on how runs went and when you're at the end of a training cycle and you look back you aren't just looking back on Strava numbers then fully agree and I think you can do it different ways old school paper journals are actually still super beneficial I think Um, I tend to keep mine in a spreadsheet now because I can pull up that little google spreadsheet while I'm out doing my cool down walk and put in some notes And then it's easier to look back and kind of compare, well, when was the last time I did this run and how did it go last time? Um, And kind of look at some of those key points. So I think training logs are hugely beneficial because it's so much more than just how far did I run and what was my time? It's those additional notes like, oh, I was I was a little bit sick or oh, I started my period or, you know, oh, I got in 600 feet of vert today. Whereas last time I did this, I went a different way and only had 200 feet. So that's why it felt so different. Yeah. Oh, I love like when I've done paper logs in the past, I've loved them. I did the Lauren Fleshman like compete or believe journal back, you know, before kids. (laughs) But it's so nice to just sometimes take pen to paper and Like, I think that process encourages reflecting on things more rather than just typing on something like Strava where you're aware that other people are going to be seeing it. Ooh, I agree. I think we change our notes when we realize other people are looking at it, right? I think so. Like, I admittedly use Strava for a lot of stuff and I'll just like write stuff on there. I'm like, I don't care if someone sees that I was on my period. I use Strava as like a personal thing. I know a lot of people do often think, how will this be perceived? Like, you don't need to think that when doing your training log. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's get into this. So I want to say that I know a lot of us get into running with weight loss as a goal. It was certainly something I was thinking about when I was starting. And so 
that means a lot of us come in with a little bit of problematic thinking sometimes around food and fueling. And we try to cover that, I think, by saying, well, I'm doing this keto. I'm doing intermittent fasting, something that we believe has these other health benefits. But really, it's just a little bit of disordered eating. So not an eating disorder, but a little bit of disordered eating where we're putting rules in place to control our food. And it's also super, super important to understand that the majority, if not all, of the diet trends that come out are tested on men and men only. And so when they come out and they say, oh, everyone who's doing this has had 20% fat loss, that is happening on men. And sometimes these things work okay on men, but on women, there's actually this backlash effect. So it might work initially, there might be some weight loss, and then all of a sudden, it's really thrown your hormones out of whack. And there's this reverse weight gain, even though now you're eating less or you're still eating this super strict way and nothing has changed. So I think it's important to have a little bit of that like knowledge and connotation as we start looking at some of these individually. Yeah. And I want to add on top of that, it's often sedentary men that some of these studies are doing, or even some of the exercise science one will be like, we looked at fasting on fat oxidation during exercise in untrained men, like men who are starting to train. And I like, I have a bunch of male athletes. And so I want to like, make sure that you guys know you still probably don't want to go down these diet rabbit holes. Sure. It might not cascade into the issues that can can for female runners, but male athletes are still at risk for rats. A hundred percent. And I have to recommend Ben Carpenter's book, Everything Fat Loss, because it goes through reams of studies around nearly every different type of diet. And I think it is useful, useful information if weight loss is your goal and you're just trying to understand what's actually happening, what's happening in your body. It is not going to give you a diet (laughs) or a prescription, but it is, I think, going to help clarify a lot of things for a lot of people. Yes. His Instagram content is great. I guess to begin, let's start with glycogen depletion runs. These were so trendy. I feel like about like seven, 10 years ago, like when I started getting into marathons, these were just it. It was like the biggest trend. I was doing these while training for most of my marathons because that was the thing at the time. Oh, painful to look back at. Yeah. And you might also hear this referred to as carb-restricted training, low-carbohydrate availability training, etc. Like if you type just glycogen depletion into PubMed, it's not going to pop up. You might have to use one of those terms. But essentially what it is, is it's this concept that you should enter a training session, such as a long run, without any like topping off your glycogen or glucose stores at all. So you go in fasted and then you continue fasted throughout the session. So you're skipping that pre-long run meal and you're skipping that long run fueling. Surprise, surprise. This was also the point in time where I ended up having hormone issues and couldn't figure out why my marathons weren't getting any better. (laughs) Oh, I know. When I did this, I was on 
the pill because I've been put on it young for my periods being irregular, but I guarantee you my periods probably would have disappeared during the time I tried this. Like if I had that health marker and there, you know, some male athletes could maybe get away with doing this for like a 30 to 60 minute easy run, but that doesn't mean it's recommended. It's just that the ramifications would be like less severe. But what essentially people argue that we do these one, two hour glycogen depletion runs for is increased fat oxidation. The theory is that if your fat oxidation is better, you're going to be able to run for longer without running out of carbohydrates or run faster without running out of carbohydrates. And I think this is interesting because it's certainly where like I have talked about this with low heart rate training that you burn more fat for fuel, but it burning more fat doesn't actually mean you're in fat loss mode. And I think that's where people end up getting these things a little bit confused and part of where there is an idea that like, this is going to help with weight loss and performance because I won't need carbs, <laughs> but that's not exactly what's happening here. What we're saying, because you'll hear this again in other diets that you become a better fat burner. What that generally means is that during any given run, you are always burning both carbohydrates and fat. Always, you're always using both, but at a lower intensity, you're burning slightly more fat than carbs. And at a higher intensity, you're burning slightly more carbs than fat. So their theory with a lot of these is that they're teaching you to keep running at a higher intensity on slightly more fat than carbs. Again, that doesn't actually mean fat loss. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't mean that you're burning away your body fat more during these runs. Um, and there's some like argument that, oh, it enhances AMPK signaling, which has to do with some of these aerobic gains. But I'll tell you right now that if you're curious at all about doing that, just slow down your easy runs. <laughs> like if you want to improve your fat oxidation, if you want to have enhanced AMPK signaling, slow down easy days. So we see in the literature that especially when you're looking at trained athletes who do high volumes of training, not just untrained men doing low volumes of training, that these glycogen depletion runs come at a cost. Um, a 2017 study found that the increased fat oxidation doesn't result in better performance and often comes with decreased running economy, which is a huge predictor of long distance running performance. So sure, maybe you're burning more fat, but you're not actually that much more efficient. A 2022 review said, quote, collectively, the evidence indicates a limited utility of training with reduced carbohydrate availability, most likely due to a decrease in training duration and or intensity. And whether you're out there for weight loss or performance, training duration and training intensity are really, really important to get the results you want. And I think a lot of you are doing this intentionally, but maybe not calling it a glycogen depletion run. You're just choosing not to fuel during your runs. And so I think this is just a reminder that you are hindering your performance. You're hindering your recovery and you're probably hindering your weight loss. I think it's a very tricky game that I see runners play of, I'm going to save these calories, but if the result is that you can't run as long, you can't run as hard, 
and you have less energy for the rest of the day, then the result is simply that you move less all day. And so it just backfires on you. It does. And this, I had this study pulled up for our discussion on fasted running in a bit. A 2012 study found that athletes who um, ran after they ate had better appetite regulation following 60 minutes of running than those who ran fasted. So like the people who ran fasted made poor eating choices and they were hungrier. So there's actually, it might be worse for weight loss even. Yes. Let's talk more about fasting since we're on that. Um, I think this is another fascinating one for me um, because especially over the years, as I have done a lot of things with Serena Marie, the registered dietitian, and we will tell people like, you've got to stop doing this. I will have people swear up and down that it's so good for them. And I understand that none of us really likes to change what we're doing, but the data just overwhelmingly says it is hindering your performance. And Running while fasted can also cause muscle breakdown. So I know there was a 2011 article in the Strength and Conditioning Journal that fasted state endurance training actually led to an increased breakdown of the proteins in muscles. So you're losing strength. You're creating more potential for soft tissue injuries. Both of these not going to help your weight loss goals. (laughs) No, no. I think runners underestimate how much like our lean muscle mass plays into weight loss and like running is already pretty catabolic as it is. We don't need to make it more catabolic than it is. I mean, cause you know, that's, yeah, you don't need to break down more muscle. And for those of you thinking like, well, I'm concerned with performance. Um, a 2021 study in nutrients compared 10K times of well-trained runners who practice intermittent fasting, so like going into a run after an overnight fast without eating anything before, and those who did not, and the performances were the same at the end of the study. So like on one hand, sure, they weren't getting worse who were doing intermittent fasting, at least on this short time frame of the study. I would be interesting to see it stretched out over a longer horizon because I think they probably would get worse, but there's no superiority to doing intermittent fasting for performance. And if it's not going to enhance your performance and it's not great for your health, why take that gamble? Yes. Another issue that comes up for women, and I actually have to say, so Peter Atia was a huge promoter of intermittent fasting. And so I generally wasn't a big fan of that because I felt like he was leaving women out of the picture. And he has more recently changed his stance on that. And some of this comes down to it does impact women differently. So we tend more naturally to have some higher cortisol stress levels because of our hormone shifting, particularly for all of you running in peri and menopause. When your other hormones are low, cortisol will sometimes try to pick up the slack. So then your stress hormone is super high. So your body is already in a stressed state. You don't give it any food and then you ask it to perform. Your stress just keeps getting higher. And what happens for a lot of people is that sure, maybe initially you have some weight loss because let's admit it. 
fasted, you're eating less. <laughs> so there's weight loss. But then at that same exact amount, a lot of women will start to feel like their body changes and maybe their weight goes back up because that cortisol is just changing everything that's happening. It's part of telling your body like, hey, I'm stressed out. And so it might cause some bloating. It might cause water retention. It might cause you to just hold on to a little more food because your body is like, I don't know what's happening here. Am I, am I running from a tiger? Do I need to hibernate? Like, why am I so stressed out? So you're not doing the thing that's most healthy for you and you're shifting your body out of balance. It like it's so bad and it's such a ripple effect as it goes longer and longer. And I think it's kind of like the glycogen depletion also. You then begin to see your exercise intensity and your exercise duration suffer because your exercise ceiling is lower, you can't do high intensity. Um you can't go for as long in your workouts. You know, you might have to cut that 60 minute easy run down to 45 minutes. And then I think that creates this like even more vicious cycle for people where they become stressed about that. They try further interventions of being like, well, maybe I I need to eat cleaner or eat less overall. And that vicious cycle just worsens. And I do feel like this is a point where sometimes then folks will lean over into something like keto or a low carb diet, because now they've been told that carbs are what is making them fat. Um, And I think there are a couple of things here to also kind of understand. And that's for quite some time, this sort of high fat diet was gaining a lot of popularity among endurance athletes. And they were saying that same idea of better fat oxidation and Ben Greenfield, who I respect because he's willing to try everything, heavily, heavily promoted it, leaned into it for his training and racing. And you mentioned long-term. So now long-term, he's saying, man, this messed up my testosterone. It was almost zero from having done this specifically. And so we know it can mess with women's hormones. Again, men, all of these things have this long-term impact. And I think especially with keto, if you're really doing it to get to, quote, ketosis, it is an extreme diet. I mean, the way you have to eat and the intensity of it is very, very specific. So it requires a lot of mental time as well. Oh yeah. I've seen for some people like keto becomes a mental load on top of all the other mental loads they're carrying where they, they're so stressed about it. And if they didn't already have disordered eating patterns, they can develop disordered eating patterns, like almost orthorexic type things where food is fearful. They stress about like eating the wrong thing about what if I go to this event and the right food isn't available, what do I do? And I mean, that's, that's not healthy for your mental or physical health. Yeah. You often hear about something called the keto flu when people are initially starting it and they sort of try to say that like, this is just your body getting healthier by getting rid of stuff, but it's not. It's your body saying, give me carbs, darn it. Like I need vegetables and fruits and carbs to feel good. And so if you are at a point where you are noticing that your body odor has suddenly gotten more intense or you feel like you're tasting pennies 
or maybe your urine has started to really smell, a lot of times these are things that people in ketosis go through and they are signs that you do not have enough carbohydrates for the activity that you're asking of your body. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, your brain needs about, depending on the person's size, 120 to 150 grams of carbohydrates to do basic brain function at rest. And so like that fog, that flu that people describe, like that cognitive fog isn't going to go away. Even as your body adapts to keto, like it's going to stay because your brain is starved for energy and forget, you know, then athletic performance, like a 2017 study in Journal of Physiology found that there was decreased exercise economy, even at low intensities. Um, I believe that was a study from Dr. Louisa Burke, and she's done a ton of stuff on this, just finding the negative ramifications of keto or low carb, high fat, however you want to exactly call it for athletic performance. Yeah. And like we said, another big issue here, low carb in general, even if you're not keto is you are probably missing out some nutrients. So we talk about calories and we talk about macros and that's fine, but nutrients are what is so key for your overall health. And it is not the same to take a daily multivitamin, they are used differently by your body from foods. And so if you are afraid of bananas and apples because you think they have too many carbs, you're missing out on true nutrients that are helping you to become stronger, keep your skin and your hair and your nails and your organs and everything else functioning and looking good as you continue to train. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's so important. And there's like down regulations that happen even within the body because everything cascades into another pathway where not only are you usually not taking in enough dietary iron, even if you're eating tons of meat because iron is in grains and stuff also, but your body's going to de- like alter its regulation of the hormones that regulate iron absorption. And a lot of athletes who don't eat enough carbs end up with low iron. We talked about these mechanisms and study in our episode on iron, but It's like people don't even think about those consequences until it happens. And I know we've talked about this some in the perimenopause, menopause running, but yes, your body does start to utilize carbs differently. But what that really just means is you don't need to go to keto and low carb. What you need to do is just look at timing a little bit better. So for all athletes, but especially for those women who are like, man, I just can't lose weight now because I'm in my fifties. Like, but get it. Things are different. But what it means is you really, really want to time your carbohydrates to be pre during and post exercise. So that is when your body is going to take them in, utilize them for energy and keep you feeling really good. It doesn't mean no carbs the rest of the day, but it means those are your highest carb moments. Yes. Yeah. Carbs are important. Like I think people forget because of our diet culture that like carbs are needed for like so much in our body. Like they're literally one of the ways that our muscles produce ATP and they're one of the primary ways our muscles make ATP at even pretty low intensity exercise. Like, and you just can't biohack your body into rewiring millennia of physiology. Yes. I don't, it is an interesting thing, right? That every few years we have a new 
demon in like the food world. We're so determined to make food the enemy. Like, I think we've talked about this before growing up, fat was the enemy. So we ate fat-free cheese. I ate bagels and Twizzlers. Like there was nothing about this that was like nutrients. It was just, well, fat is now the enemy. So I will eat all of these foods that don't have fat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's really easy to like demonize carbs because when you do temporarily remove carbs, because a gram of carbohydrates takes three grams of water to store as glycogen, you perceive weight loss because you've lost a ton of water weight. And that's all. Like you're not losing that much fat when you start a low carb diet. It's water weight. Same reason athletes that when you carb load, you feel puffy, water weight, Um, not fat loss or fat gain. Yep. I hope if we can get people to make one switch, I will say that for myself, because like I said, certainly weight loss was on my mind in my early 20s. One of the things I started thinking about was not what should I not eat, but what should I eat? And so that got me to start thinking about, well, gosh, when I eat more fruits and I eat more vegetables and I eat more protein, like how much better my runs felt. And I've talked to a lot of athletes and I feel like when we can get to that point where we make that shift away from the not eating list to the what am I eating and how does it make me feel? Suddenly like food is not scary. I can have the pizza on Friday. I can have that cookie because most of the time I'm thinking about this food is going to make my run feel better tomorrow. And so I'm choosing foods in that way. And so I'm choosing the potatoes. I'm choosing the bread because it's making my runs feel better. And if we can just get to that little shift, I think it's such a win. I agree. Like, I think it's such a healthier place to think as an athlete, like, am I getting enough fiber? Am I getting enough protein versus, oh, I should restrict X, Y, or Z. And I think too often we don't realize because again, it's, it's numbers. We can control numbers. Like it's X calories in, it's X calories out. So we just want to look like straight at the data. But if you are using a log and tracking how your runs feel and what your energy is like, and not even what your energy is like just during the run, but what's my energy like the rest of the day? What's my quality of life like? How well am I able to think at work? It's a lot easier to start making these shifts. And then oddly enough, because you're not so stressed, you're not so food focused, sometimes that weight loss goal is easier to hit. You're moving more. You have the energy to strength train on top of your runs. You can actually build some muscle because you're getting in enough food. So that positive shift can have the trickle down effect that you've been looking for too. Absolutely. Um, And then since we're pretty much near time, I just want to leave some numbers for our listeners because my athletes always ask about numbers. Um, And I will say like numbers can be difficult. So I encourage people to always look at the athletes play from University of Colorado Springs or University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, um, because it gives visuals of what your plate should look like. But if depending on your training volume, you're probably going to be in the range of five to 12 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram, 2.2 pounds of body weight. Maybe if you're just like doing leisure running, not training hard, it might be like four grams. 
But for those of you who are thinking, I'm training for a marathon, I'm training for a half or an ultra, most of you probably listening to us are probably in the range of like five to eight grams per kilogram. And that's actually a good amount. <laughs> and so I think sometimes when athletes like sit down and do that math or they look at the athlete's plate, they're like, wow, I did not realize it was supposed to be so much. And then they implement it and they're like, wow, I feel awesome. Yeah. I think the number of times myself included that I could say, oh, I made that shift because I learned something new and gosh, I feel better. So a lot of these things we share with you, one, because we've learned more, two, because we have probably made a lot of these mistakes. I mean, if I could go back to those marathons I was running in 2014, 2015, what a game changer to have been fueling my body appropriately. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And I will always be a huge advocate for like eating enough, training properly, rather than trying to make shortcuts around your training with diet interventions that have negative downstream effects. A hundred percent. All right. If there's something we didn't cover here, you can always leave a note on the show. You can always contact us at tread lightly running on Instagram. We're happy to answer other questions or if there's other topics around food and fueling that you want to see covered, let us know. And as always, please rate review and subscribe. We really appreciate that. It helps people find the podcast. And thank you all so much for listening.